Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen Thompson and I are talking with Diane Coyle and Anand Menon about the long-term consequences of Brexit for the economy and for politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Helen and I recorded two conversations, so this is coming in two parts. First, Diane on the economics, and then Anand on the politics. We've spoken to them both quite often in the past, and Helen and I discussed some of these questions last week. But this is a chance to really try and take the long view, starting with the question about what the trade deal actually means. Diane, just to start with a pretty basic question, where are you on the idea that um, this, this bright, shiny Brexit future and the trading arrangement that we have with the EU now is, in the Prime Minister's words, relatively frictionless. Uh, Laughing with astonishment that anybody could seriously make that claim is where I am with that. The, The idea that this is frictionless is absurd. We're talking amongst ourselves now as shops in Northern Ireland are running out of goods. The uh, increase in the costs of trade with the EU are much increased and going to stay there because forever now, people exporting to the EU from Britain or importing to us from the EU will have a lot of forms to fill out, extra checks. Companies are having to pay for licenses to have their goods certified for sale. The idea that this is frictionless is totally absurd. And when do you think it'll be felt? You know, that there's obviously this issue at the moment that it's quite hard to, I mean, maybe easier for you, it's quite hard for me to disaggregate COVID effects from Brexit effects. Um, And as you say, Northern Ireland, things maybe are already being felt. And and Helen and I talked about the ways in which Northern Ireland may be where these things are most visible. But more broadly for the UK, when when and where do you think people will feel the friction? We're um, in a situation now where there's less going on than usual, partly because of the holiday, the seasonality, partly because of COVID. So people are going to be feeling the friction more and more the closer things get back to anything like normal kinds of volumes. These are permanent changes. And it's not just trade with the EU, actually. It's trade with other countries with which we formerly had deals through the EU. And those are all either one by one being renegotiated or still have to be negotiated. So there are permanent frictions. And the more people try to trade in and out of the country, the more they're going to hit the realisation that this is what has happened and it's what's permanent. Uh, Being able to explain what's due to Brexit and what's due to other things going on is a different matter because, of course, people people adjust to constraints. They want to carry on running their businesses or importing goods, so they'll get used to it. And it'll be quite hard to disentangle Brexit effects from uh, COVID effects anyway. But compared to the counterfactual world in which we had not created these frictions for ourselves in trade, we are without question going to be worse off. And that realisation will dawn with more and more people as the weeks go by. I just think on the Northern Ireland question, there is a time issue because there is actually a a sort of a grace period on some of the changes, which I think runs till either the end of March or the beginning of April. And given the problems that are already ensuing under the changes that have thus far been made, the prospect of further changes after that grace period finishes is is obviously going to create significant more difficulty unless there is some resolution of the issues that arise in relation to the Northern Irish protocol before that grace period ends. I think people had hoped we've got a deal, we've got to the new year, Brexit is over, we can stop talking about this now. It's going to go on forever, I think, because one way for future governments to bring about easy win economic benefits will be to decide to align more closely with the EU on on this or that be it financial services or trade and other services, passports, work permits, and so on. And so I think the story is going to be never ending. And 
as long as we have this political context where governments, a conservative government, decides it needs to do, to do things that any rational person would think was mad, we're going to ha- carry on, you know, talking about Brexit on these podcasts and in, reading about it in the papers and online all the time. And there I was hoping that this was going to be our last one. <laughs> no such luck. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the point where I probably disagree is about um, financial services and whether and how much pressure there really is going to be to move towards more convergence or less divergence there, because this is another issue that's obviously still under discussion because there was going to be possibly, you know, like a set of equivalence agreements negotiated over the over the, the coming months. But I think we can already see the government's intent there and the city's intent, I think, as well, with the issue of um, the trading of Swiss shares back in London, something that the, the EU had stopped. And so the Britain was still under the EU's rules. And we can see the determination of players in the city, but also, as I say, the, the government for Britain to go its own way there. And the more that Britain goes its own way over issues like that, the less likely there, there is going to be a set of equivalence agreements between Britain and the EU over financial services. And I think that the structural force there, um, which you know, goes back to the beginning of Brexit, as I was saying in the in the last podcast, whereby financial services, the city does not want to be regulated by the the EU over a, of a set of issues is going to be stronger than the um, desire to hold on to market share in some parts of financial services. You know, I, actually, I disagree with myself, but for a different reason on financial services. And that's that it's one part of the economy where if it were to shrink, I wouldn't be sure that it was bad for the economy as a whole. If you look back, obviously, at the financial crisis, you could make a very plausible argument, and many people did, that it had been subtracting value from the economy, not adding value. So if the city shrinks, I'm not going to uh, weep many tears for it. Diane, the way you put it was that when governments in this post-Brexit world look for cheap wins, they do it by aligning. And yet the language that this government is using, if we leave aside the, the frictionless bit, which is a bit of a fiction, but that you know where the wins are in their terms is divergence, not alignment. So there's the question about divergence with financial services, but then there's a whole wider issue about level playing field, state aid, the leveling up agenda, and so on. So the way you put it suggested that the political payoff is going to actually have to be moving closer to the EU, but everything that the government says implies that the political payoff is going to be doing things differently. I suppose we're talking about different potential political payoffs. And so there's the one that you were just describing, but there's also what happens when groups of people have this dawning realisation that the rug has been pulled out from under their business because they need a certain licence or they need to pay £20,000 to get things um, approved for sale in the EU and they don't have that. I don't think it's possible to foretell at the moment which way that will fall overall. Helen, I mean, I'm going to put this slightly awkwardly, but how do you see the trade-off between the playoffs, if you see what I mean? I mean, on the one hand, the kind of pressure that you get from people who start to complain that it wasn't meant to be like this, and on the other hand, trying to demonstrate particularly to new Conservative voters that Britain doing things differently benefits them. I think it's difficult to tell how this is going to play out at the moment, partly because of the pandemic and partly because I think in in certain areas at least um, the government hasn't really entirely made its mind up I'm not saying for necessarily for bad reasons as to what price it's willing to pay for divergence because that is in one sense the ongoing choice that is created by the nature of this trade agreement that choices have to be made over and over again about what price one pays in terms of access for being able to do things more in a in a distinctive kind of way but I also don't think that this question can really be, you know, like separated out from a much bigger picture in regard to both the, the EU and the world economy generally. And that is the China question, because what we've seen in terms of the way in which the EU has gone with the China investment agreement and the way in which British policy is developed, both in foreign policy terms, but also increasingly in economic policy terms in terms of the the China revelation is a big divergence. You can see that in relation to the issues that um, Dominic Raab was talking about 
either yesterday or the, the day before, about taking action against British companies that don't extract themselves from um, slave labour in China and in their supply chains. And that's a very different position than what the EU has ended up. There's a clear difference about the, the Hong Kong issue. So I think if we can see that the British economy, in some sense, is taking two shocks from where it was back in 2015, which is to separate from the EU and to separate from what David Cameron and George Osborne were calling a golden era of UK-China economic relations and moving to something that looks much more like what the US position has been, though how far that changes under Biden is obviously open to question. So I think we're seeing, if you like, big picture divergence already between Britain and the EU over the China question, and then how that plays out at sectoral level as the, the Johnson government has to make choices about different sectors and what price it's willing to pay for divergence is going to be ongoing, if you like, underneath that. China is, of course, a large potential market. So if you were looking for other markets to export to, it would have been, I suppose, an obvious one to think about. This puts all the more pressure on getting a deal with the United States. And then some other contentious issues are going to come up, like food standards and opening the health market to American companies. So there are a whole load of quite difficult political choices over many years to come. I don't think there's much possibility on the US side for the very issue that you say, Diane, about agricultural trade. I think what you'll see is the government trying to do, the UK government trying to focus more on what it thinks of now as Indo-Pacific, so uh, India and non-Chinese Pacific countries, economies. Diane, do you think that there are particular sectors outside of financial services that stand to benefit, if only from enhanced government investment under these new conditions? So there's a question about which parts of the world will be focused on. There's also a question about which parts of the UK economy will be focused on. And that's also a regional question. It's a levelling up question. It's a red wall question. It's a north-south divide question. But if you think about it in terms of sectors, I mean, for instance, around the possibility of an industrial policy, is there genuine opportunity here? There are some opportunities. It isn't clear to me how willing the government is to lean on the strengths that we have already. So in some cases, that's straightforward. So we know that we're a world leader in AI, for example. You might think about investing more in that. We know that there's already a big commitment to investing in energy technologies such as batteries, and and they're perfectly sensible. But there are other sectors where we're world leaders, and the government has a kind of, this government has a kind of culture wall declared, and that's higher education and, and the creative sector. We are already extremely good exporters in both of those. We could do much more. But all the signs are that those are areas that the government doesn't really want to support for other reasons. I think it shouldn't be underestimated how committed this government became during the course of um, 2020 to green energy as, in some sense, uh, an economic remedy and political remedy for just about everything. Uh, I think that that's kind of laid out in that piece that Boris Johnson wrote for the Financial Times. I think it was back in... November, where he got sort of 10 different things, just in economic terms, that um, green energy was going to deliver. And if you say then, well, how does that fit into the political picture, is that it's part of the levelling up agenda quite clearly. It's about making sure that there's more manufacturing activity and also offshore activity in terms of of wind in the northeast of England and crucially from the point of view of preserving the union in um, Scotland And it's also the way of joining up the political problem of the Red Water, so to speak, with the issue of the the city, because it will be, in his sort of optimistic take on this, it will be green finance coming out of the city and green manufacturing going on in the northeastern Scotland. I agree. And I think it's an unambiguously good thing to be doing this. We need green energy. We have advantages that we can build on. We also need, though, as well as investing in the UK in that, to be able to export whatever it is that we devise, the batteries or the turbines or, or whatever. And so it's linked back to trade deals. We need to be able to export whatever we innovate into world markets. And that will mean negotiating about global standards because these things become global markets when everybody accepts the same standard. Diane, do you think, Helen and I talked about this last time, that one of the arguments that's sometimes made for Brexit is that it's a kind of clarifying event And some of the things that either obscured what was really going on or became convenient excuses for politicians or people in business, opportunities to blame Europe or whatever it is, 
been taken away and so that in a sense there's something a bit more transparent potentially about both UK policy and the outcomes. Do you see any merit in that argument? Just thinking about it in in economic terms, particularly some of the things you're interested in, like how we measure the economy, how we think about productivity, that there is at least here the possibility that certain things will become clearer. The thing that became clear for me in the years since 2016 is actually the um, levelling up issues. And the fact that we now can't blame Brussels for that means that the blame will be assigned to where I think it belonged in the first place, and that's Whitehall and Westminster, that many of the long-term ills that affect the economy and the inequalities across different places, they stem from being over-centralised and having a system that makes mistakes, doesn't have local information, and and those mistakes then have a a nationwide effect. So they're they're serious once when when they happen. So I I think um, the consequence will be both the levelling up agenda in economic terms and also the the politics of devolution and English regional government in the UK are going to become much clearer and and the next front line. And just before Helen comes in, if I just push it a bit, is it possible also therefore to make the argument that we are advantaged by this relative to the rest of the EU, that is for the rest of the EU, which faces many of these questions too in very different ways, but questions about inequality, about the difference between you know, regions, localities and the centre, about excessive but inefficient centralisation of certain things, that we might be better placed than the rest of the EU to tackle these things post-Brexit? Might we have a more cathartic crisis? Then, Of course it's possible. It's possible. But then you're back to saying we pay quite a high price for them, including making the regional divisions worse than they already were, because that's what happens when you have less growth in the economy than you otherwise would have. I mean, I think that the EU and the UK face different political problems in relation to their economic purposes. And that is on the EU side, it's the, it's the difficulty of being, leaving the Eurozone aspect out of it for a moment, essentially a, a confederation that is trying to deal with big economic questions in which the different member states have pretty clearly different interests. And you can see the, the tensions, the deep tensions that that caused in the uh, the EU-China investment agreement that looks like it's been driven by German political leadership and to some extent German commercial interests. And so the question of like what the economic and political implications of that for other member states gets swallowed up by the, the dominant power to some extent the problem for the UK is that the whole political situation in relation to the union means what to do about decentralisation for economic purposes to try to get more locally attuned economic activity in the way in which Diane's just been talking about is hugely complicated by there not being an, anything like an easy way out or even perhaps any way out at all of the union crisis both in relation to Scotland and in relation to Northern Ireland and in relation to England because whilst you can make an argument that that might say that that says rather that um, regional government in England would be good economically politically though that's a that's a big problem because anything that involves a continuing Scottish and Welsh national parliament but relegating English nationhood to to the regions is already proven when some version of that was what New Labour was trying to pursue is, is not only going nowhere but being I think in the end destructive of the union. So in a way, the government has opened Pandora's box by focusing on levelling up the levelling up agenda because expectations have been raised, and uh, among backbench MPs as well as among local leaders around the country, and actually it's a really hard problem to tackle. The scale of what's needed to level up, particularly in the face of Brexit and the pandemic, is just enormous. If we just bracketed the union question for a second, and if, as it were, there was a free hand. What is the level at which you think it would be most appropriate to invest or to target? What are we talking about here? I mean, how local is local, do you think? It depends a bit on which kinds of responsibilities um, you think are important. So if you're talking about regional transport networks, then it'll be one answer. It might be city regions or larger scale regions. If you're talking about environmental schemes, then the information that you need to make those work is is much more local and that needs to trickle down. And so does uh, housing policy, for instance. So the the sort of technocratic economic answer 
will be different for different kinds of levers. And there's also a question about how do you then map the political accountability if you're going to think about devolving further levers of action, policy action to different layers of government? What are the accountability mechanisms that need to be in place? And we just across England have a bit of a dog's breakfast of different responsibilities and actually quite weak accountability, which needs a lot of thought. And it's something that whenever governments have looked at it in any detail, they've backed away from changing. Do you think, I mean, I'm I, I'm asking a question that I think I already know the answer to, and I'm, I'm <laughs> sceptical, but um, I want to put it anyway. So the other way this could go, there's the kind of win-win potentially of a sort of green energy investment agenda. But then, as you said, one of the UK's strengths is in technology. Sometimes it's just broadly called innovation. But as you also said, more specifically, AI and AI research and also capability. And, you know, there is that kind of boosterism around AI that it's the thing that will allow this kind of fine-grained understanding of the economy, fine-grained and fine-tuned forms of local government, maybe in smart cities or, you know, whatever. Is there any way you think of making the case that there's a win-win there too, that really focusing on Britain's strengths in technology and AI also possibly creates an opportunity for a much more responsive form of local government? No, I don't think that's the case at all. Okay. And <laughs> I tried. It's partly it's partly AI hype, and AI yeah. is still much more of a craft than a, an automated process. It needs quite a lot of skill. It also feeds on data. And so I think actually the more fundamental reason I disagree with that supposition is that there's, it's a myth that we can capture in data at all the kinds of information that you would need to have effective control of decision making. And there's a, a further point, which is about if you're talking about policies that make things better for people, you can't do that to people. There also has to be that accountability and engagement. And it's pretty hard for people to engage with a machine learning system. It's not a, an appropriate way to think about shaping policies. So the information isn't there in the data and can't possibly be. And it completely misses that political accountability point, which for many people around the country is as important as we're not as rich as London. It's we have no say over what they're doing to us. It's that that loss of agency and the need for respect that is missing in our polity. So we're going to talk to Anand about this in, in a second. Helen, do you think in the end, actually, so we've been talking or focusing here on some of the economic consequences, but actually, as it always has been in a way, this is an accountability question, a political accountability question. I mean, at the heart of Brexit, in one sense, it was an, uh, an accountability um, question, because there was the question about whether there actually was sufficient consent to Britain's membership of the, the European Union and underneath, if you like, the, the suspicion that there wasn't and the, the discontent um, was the idea from the point of view of people who didn't like EU uh, membership that the outcomes that came out of it, the decisions that were made and the outcomes that then came that nobody was accountable um, for because there wasn't any direct elections to in terms of the of, of the people who made the decisions within the EU and then Governments came back from the EU summits, let's say, and then and 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 then would that then would wash their hands to some extent of the outcome and, and blame Brussels or the or, or the EU, um, whatever. So in that sense, there's certainly going to be nowhere for British politicians to hide in the same way. But that means that the expectations of them can be considerably higher than they were. And I think what we've already seen in the way in which Brexit has played out since the. Um, referendum was that that whole idea of take back control that was used as the leave campaign slogan was directed against take back control from the European Union but I think we can see that it became take back control from the politicians at Westminster too and that particularly became true in relation to the the non-southeast parts of the the country that voted majority wise for leave. And we've seen the kind of um, price that central politicians might pay in the response to uh, the, the track and trace system and the failure to use local public health mechanisms early in the pandemic, where there clearly was a supposition in the centre that they knew all they needed to know. And it was just as clearly not true. And Diane, one last question, since you raised COVID. So now we're in the vaccine phase of this. 
And vaccination, as far as I can tell, looks like something that probably does need a certain amount of central direction. If it works, if this phase of the pandemic turns out successfully and the vaccination program is scaled up and it does deliver the forms of herd immunity that we're promised, does that have any potential to redress the balance and, as it were, restore some confidence, do you think, in the centre? There's a mix of of central direction and local implementation that's necessary. And they do seem to be getting that writer more right in the vaccination programme than they did in in the track and trace programme originally. And the NHS itself has this combination of central structures and uh, local trusts making um, implementation decisions. So um, I think that will be more effective. And, you know, if we get out from our bedrooms again, we're all going to be really delighted. So I think there'll definitely be some upside from that. (laughs) For a while, and then we'll start complaining again. (laughs) And as you said, and then some of the other things will start to bite. I mean, that's the thing. There is that paradox here, which is return to normality brings other things into focus, which are going to be difficult. They are. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And then Diane Coyle told us that we're never going to be past talking about Brexit and this is going to go on and on forever, even though we kind of hope that this might be the last one we did on this subject for a while. What's your sense of the view from from the EU, from European states, now that we have a deal? Is there any kind of feeling that we can move on or are they just as resigned as I think I now am to the fact this is going on and on and on? Well, there's a distinction, I suppose, to be drawn between EU states and the EU itself. And I think actually many EU states had moved on long before the deal was signed on Christmas Eve and only had at best half an eye on the Brexit ball. The European Commission, I think, is ready for what looks like it might be an endless negotiation that goes on indefinitely, because that seems to be what the deal that they've penned implies, that there is going to be a constant negotiation. And every few years, that's going to be ramped up into a new negotiation on fish or a revisiting of the deal as a whole. But I think member states themselves are are going to keep their distance from that. And among the member states, I mean, there was for a while anyway, some attempt to paint Brexit as a kind of morality tale or there, but for the grace of God, go you if you flirt with this stuff. Do you have any feeling now whether that has gone away too? Or are there still people who want to hold this up as an, an example of what you know what might happen if you play with fire? I mean, to be honest, I was always sceptical about this fear of emulation. And I, th- I think it it led to the EU side being far, far too defensive in its approach to the Brexit talks. There were always those. I mean, I remember the Front National in France in the early stages holding Brexit up. Everyone stopped doing that quite quickly. It was very, very noticeable how even those political parties you might think would want to hold Brexit up as an example stopped doing so. And I just think... The fact of the matter is, if you look at the other member states, the majority of them are small states. And small states don't tend to leave big clubs because big clubs make them feel more secure. The majority are also Eurozone members. So if you think that Brexit was an absolute nightmare, imagine doing Brexit while changing your currency. And the final thing I think there's a real difference between the UK and other member states is European integration is baked into the political DNA of other member states in a way it simply never was here. I think the reason for that, I think, is for every other member state, European integration was an economic project conceived of for political objectives. So for the original six, coal and steel wasn't about coal and steel, it was about war. For the southern states, it was about moving from autocracy to democracy. For the states of Eastern Europe, it was about escaping the Soviet Union. Whereas for the United Kingdom... European integration was an economic project for explicitly economic objectives, which meant that the glue that held us there was far less strong than it was for other member states. So I I don't think there was ever a serious danger of emulation, to be honest. I think that the, I might add on, that the the risk of supposed contagion at the beginning was, was massively overdone, both because for the Eurozone states, as Anons 
already said, you're just not comparing like like in any way whatsoever, really, in terms of exit, including the fact there isn't a sort of set of institutional processes for leaving the, the Eurozone as there is for leaving the European Union via Article 50, but also because that narrative ignored the pretty specific set of circumstances that led to Cameron calling the referendum and the referendum result having the outcome um, in which it did, and then the decision of effectively Cameron himself, but more importantly, you know, his successor to accept the result of the referendum and and, um, and try to implement it. So the idea that you know that Brexit was contagious, I just I could never see that, and there was actually a way from the EU's point of view to some degree anyway of, of, of telling a positive story about it which was that it made it possible to begin to sort out the relationship between the eurozone ins and the eurozone outs because obviously britain was the most problematic in terms of the possibility of ever joining the euro of the eurozone outs i think though that there was still you know potential for considerable domestic contest in a couple of the, in more than a couple actually, of the European Union um, states about the terms of their membership of the European Union. That will play out in in different ways. In in Italy, a great deal of that is really about keeping the League and Salvini out of, of power. And if the Italian government is going to fall, or at least Renzi is going to pull the plug on the, the coalition, then that's going to become a question again. There's the question of Poland and Hungary's position in in the Union, both in terms of the ways in which those governments perceive membership as a constraint and the growing opposition of some people in other member states to those countries and membership. So I don't think that there aren't political existential questions um, for European Union state members, but I don't think that they make sense in terms of comparing them to the circumstances that led to Brexit. And I'm going to ask a question. I know the answer to this is that you can't generalise in this way. But if you think about Europe's sort of mainstream politicians, and if you assume that the the risk of contagion was overdone, and therefore there isn't a kind of imperative to think that if Brexit is a success, other people will think that they can get away with it too. And if you also leave aside schadenfreude, and I think think, it's not only Germans who experience schadenfreude, everyone does. Do you think that Europe's mainstream politicians can now just say to themselves, well, let's just hope, you know, it's a success. You know, we genuinely do want the UK to thrive. It's near enough to us. Um, Its prosperity will be, you know, knock on effects on our prosperity. We've now got the security of this deal, which is if they really do diverge, you know, we've got weapons we can use against them. That There is a kind of mindset, which is let's just make the best of it. Uh, To an extent, I don't see Macron embracing that sort of thinking, particularly not least because of the electoral challenges he's going to face over the next couple of years. I think it is still, I think, in the political interests of some EU leaders for the UK to do quite badly, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, because that gives them arguments to beat their domestic populists with but i think the other the other part of it is and, and no one is doing this yet I, you know i'm quite amazed by the reluctance of people either in the uk or in the european union to actually sit down and say look these are very close and important allies as well as trading partners we need to figure out a way that we can collaborate closely together going forward to address the common threats that we face globally and the Brexit negotiations were not a vehicle by which we did that because we focused so narrowly on our defensive interests. But we need to now start thinking about how to build a proper strategic alliance which allows us to work together to our mutual interests. And there's very, very little sign of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that this goes back, though, to the um, the question, David, that um, you and I were discussing with Diane in the earlier part of this episode, and that is how to think about the world in which China has taken the turn in which it has and in which Britain and the EU have really diverged about China's turn over the last year or so. And I'm saying it as a turn in the last year or so because obviously it's much bigger than that, but I'm particularly thinking about the Hong Kong question in, in this respect. And that is where I think that there is, if you put that into the bigger picture, still a question in terms of how Brexit is perceived in relation to how the EU's credibility is perceived. And I mean by that the EU's ability to act in the geopolitical world. And the tendency, this very strong tendency, is as we know, is is for 
a German-led EU to treat geopolitical questions primarily as economic questions and not as long-term security questions. And that I think that China really is going to put that commitment that the EU has in some sense formalised in the China Investment Pact to the test. And uh, a Britain that's doing something different and probably has been only able to do something different on China by being outside of the EU is, I think, going to bring in some competition between Britain and the EU uh, geopolitically about how either side deals with the geopolitically changing world. Now, I agree with Anon that you, you would think that in principle that there's a case for trying to find a cooperative way forward. But I think that what we're seeing already over China is, is that the differences now run really quite deep. One of the wonderful paradoxes for me at the moment is that Britain, a country that other European states look at as a sort of populist country, has embraced a very, very liberal approach to foreign policy. And that in its, in its uh, approach towards China in particular, the concern voiced about human rights abuses in China, the offer of British passports to Hong Kongers. Britain is the sort of uber-liberal European state when it comes to matters of foreign policy now, which is, if nothing else, quite interesting. And, and I don't know if you'd accept this, but you know, there's an irony in what you said and then what Helen said. So as you described it, the EU for European continental European member states is a political project kind of dressed up as an economic project. But then, as Helen said, it's kind of morphed at the geopolitical level into something where political questions actually get subsumed in economic questions. So in a a way, it's almost being sort of caught by its own game here, that it can't now escape from the trap that these things are constructed in economic terms. And that, at least on Helen's account, that's a real handicap. Absolutely. And again, this goes back to the foundations of the European Union, that European integration was a was a means of taming power. It was a means of doing away with geopolitics. It was a way of preventing large member states from wielding their their power and influence. And, you know, one of the many sort of issues that the European Union now has to confront is how an organisation constructed explicitly to tame power can learn to deploy power internationally. And the very institutions that have been so successful at managing intra-European imbalances now prevent the European Union from becoming an effective actor in its own right in international relations. So what then, finally, and we can spend a few minutes on this, but not, I hope, more, what about the legacy of Brexit then for British domestic politics? So we're going to be focusing a lot on this podcast on the fate of the Union, but Obviously, there are other questions too. So just to take one example, we've talked a bit about the ways in which the Keir Starmer-led Labour Party have tried, has tried to park Brexit in various ways to quote-unquote move on. So Starmer said a few days ago that free movement was no longer an issue on which he was prepared to make a fight, despite the fact that in the general election, he absolutely said that he would continue to fight on that issue. Is it going to be possible for Labour or indeed for any other opposition party to properly put this to one side? Or do you think these things are inevitably going to come back, say questions about free movement and immigration are going to come back and you know bite in the way, not, maybe not as acutely as they did during the acute Brexit phase, but still pretty acutely? I'd say there are at least three reasons why Labour are going to struggle to put Brexit fully behind them. Firstly, because some Labour MPs are very, very keen to keep this debate going. I was on if I may say so, a rival podcast the other day with uh, Rosie Duffield, who was talking about the need for Labour to start, you know, thinking about how best to militate in favour of the UK rejoining the European Union. That's not something that Keir Starmer would be particularly happy to hear, but there are some Labour MPs who won't let this go. Secondly, the structure of the deal itself means the EU will continue to raise its head in British politics, not least when we have in five years' time the review of the the agreement as a whole that we have to have every five years. And we've got the consent mechanism instalment as well. We have the renegotiation of fisheries. So, you know, this is going to turn into a hardy perennial in our political life because we will have to have these set piece negotiations with the with the uh, European Union. And the third thing is it might well be in the interests of the Conservative Party itself to bring up the issue of Brexit periodically because, of course, what Boris Johnson did at the last election was basically create a Leave coalition. And it's a coalition that holds together on the basis of social values and attitudes about Brexit, but very little else. So I think for a Conservative strategist, if you said, 
your choice is to run the next election on the basis of the traditional left-right division or to run it on values and identity type issues, including Brexit, the attraction will be to go for the latter because on the former, the, the party is hopelessly divided now. I agree with all those in, in, in different ways. I mean, I think that on the freedom of movement issue, I will be surprised if under Keir Starmer's leadership, we see any significant change of direction from the Labour Party to to open that up because this is an issue that caused them difficulties before the referendum. It was clearly causing difficulty in various of the seats that they lost, like Ed Balls in 2015, where the UKIP vote was large enough to end up giving the Conservatives a majority. So I think that under a a leader who who isn't somebody like um, Jeremy Corbyn, that the Labour Party is going to be very cautious about the, the freedom of movement issue. Now, that means that really any politics in terms of dealing with these ongoing issues um, with the EU that wants to move towards getting the UK back into the single market, at least, is pretty politically constrained. It doesn't mean that that issue can't cause significant internal division in the in the Labour Party, but I can't see that the the people on the the single market side of that are going to win. And, and indeed, I think if you if you go back to two thousand and nineteen, you can see that there was significantly more support in the parliamentary Labour Party when we had all those votes on different possibilities for the customs union option than there was for the single market, um, staying in the single market option. So I think that Labour is going to have to take up positions as these issues that have to be either dealt with in committees or at a certain point reviewed and possibly renegotiated. But I think it will do so within a fairly narrow political range of possibilities, at least unless and until a new shock happens, if you like, and, and, and disturbs the, the political status quo. Because I think that at the moment what we've ended up with is, is both parties in largely the same position where Brexit is concerned, with one of them, the Conservatives, for the reasons that Anon said, having a considerable advantage because it was the one that invested its political credibility in, in Brexit happening and the Labour Party moved away from a position where after the referendum it had committed to accepting the referendum result. So what then does Labour do? So if if the Conservatives successfully mobilise a Leave coalition around Brexit as a sort of cultural marker and using immigration as a form of politics that they know the other side are uncomfortable talking about immigration and migration. What do Labour do? Presumably Labour don't try and assemble the Remain coalition and get that gang back together again because the Remain coalition consistently seems to lose. And then what do you think, I mean, how does Labour respond to that kind of politics? Can't kind of sit it out, can't say we don't want to talk about this. No, but you can try and move the political debate onto different terrain, can't you? And I think as we spoke about last time, the, the fact of the matter is by the time we get towards Easter next year, the only issue, assuming that the public health crisis is receding significantly by then through because of the, the vaccine. When you say next year, do you mean this year? Oh my God, that's this year. Yeah, you see, this yeah. is what happens when you reach my age. This, this is year. what happens in lockdown. <laughs> this year, next year, and last year are the same year. Here's me wrapping presents for Christmas tomorrow, and I've got it all wrong. Uh, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the big issue by the time we get to Easter is going to be the post-COVID economic crisis. And I think Labour have got to hope that that is the terrain on which political battles will be fought between then and the next election, because they're actually, they can mobilise the sort of arguments about competence, they can pick holes in the government's record of dealing with the impact of the unemployment crisis we're all expecting to happen. And it's far, far more comfortable terrain for the party. So part of this is not simply about whether or not you can win a battle, it's whether or not you need to fight it and whether actually politics is going to be fought over a different issue. And I think Labour will be going all out to make it about economics. And what would the Rosie Duffield say to that? You know, the people who still think that there is a battle to be fought, that this this long struggle is not over, presumably come Easter and beyond, they wouldn't see any sense in trying to foreground it then. Do you think, uh, well, I mean, is there... Is, is there a real constituency on the opposition side? I mean, we haven't talked about some of the other parties to get the the case for long term Britain going back in the EU, get it going, or do you think it's going to wait a bit? I think part of that depends on you know how many 
how many headlines about confiscated ham sandwiches we're confronted with over the course of the next couple of years. That's to say, you know, if the border starts to function relatively well, if we don't get many, many stories about companies going under because of the impact of Brexit, then actually it's harder to reignite that debate. If, however, it turns out to be a total mess, both in terms of the border with Northern Ireland and in terms of the border with the European Union, then yes, absolutely, that movement to reignite that debate about the EU, and if not rejoining, then at least whether or not we should have a closer relationship with it, I think that will come back in force. So it's partly about whether the economics drowns out everything else. It's partly too, I think, about how Brexit ends up working in practice and how it's reported in the media and what the stories around it are. And for the ham sandwich stories, what the Remain Coalition needs is a Boris Johnson. I mean, that is the Daily Telegraph Boris Johnson from 25 years ago, because he was the master turning ham sandwich stories into political gold. Anyway. I think the thing that brings it back quite quickly is the union. I know you were trying to get us away from talking about the union this time, but I think it's in a inescapable because if you if we move to a, a referendum before the end of this parliament another scottish referendum on independence and that referendum were to be won by the scottish government and I, I know both of these things are big ifs but if they were the case both of those things happened then i think that that would be seen as an opportunity by the remain side to say look it simply won't be possible to sort out independence for Scotland, unless at the very least that the rest of the United Kingdom is back in the single market. And and, and I think that this is why the, the Brexit issue and the union issue keep being tangled up together. And then can I ask you a sort of personal political question, given that the UK and a changing Europe, the project that you've been running through the whole of this saga, you know, right from the beginning, and you've been informing the public, tracking public opinion, debating with the politicians, you know, the lot. How do you feel about it now? Um, I mean, have you got any sense of closure and moving to a next stage? Or is it leaving aside, you don't know which year it is, and you know, we're, we're all locked down and you know, time has changed shape slightly. But do you get any sense post the deal, given you know your professional and personal activities over the last, what is it, four or five years, that we're in a different phase? Or does it just kind of morph from one to the other? I think it morphs. I mean, I find it very, very hard to reflect back. Jill Rutter and I wrote a piece for Prospect at the tail end of last year, which was my my, my first real attempt to sort of look back and try and make sense of what had happened. And I found it very, very difficult to do, to be honest. It's all a bit of a blur. But uh, I think... Brexit has morphed from one thing into another. That is to say, it's morphed from the process of leaving the European Union to the process of what do we do with our country now that we have left the European Union. And in many ways, the social science questions posed by this next phase are more interesting than the social science questions posed by the first stage. Because now, as you say, we've got questions over the state of the union. We've got this natural experiment about what happens to an economy when you make trade with its largest trading partner more difficult. Uh, we have the whole issue of a government that is talking of levelling up at a time of unprecedented sort of uh, economic crisis. So in, in a sense, it's just become a different set of questions, but in a way, questions that are, if anything, slightly more interesting than the ones we wrestled with for the first five years. So you're going to keep going? Uh, well, for the moment, I mean, we are we are... We are meant to keep going till Easter of 2022 anyway. But I think the idea that somehow now that this process is over, that the need for social scientists to be making the findings of their research widely available has disappeared is a silly one. Next week, it's back to America and Joe Biden's inauguration with Gary Gerstel. And then soon we're going to be talking about Italy. Is the government going to fall? Germany, who is going to succeed? Angela Merkel. Finally, we wanted to tell you about the new series of History of Ideas that we have starting on February the 2nd. As before, we'll put the first episode out on Talking Politics, but then our separate stream, History of Ideas, is where you'll find the next 11. And this time we're doing something slightly different with our partners at the LRB. There is a membership scheme, History of Ideas Plus, where you will get through the LRB bookshop all the books that I'm going to be talking about, 12 of them in good quality editions, plus extra books, biographies of some of the authors. We've also put together an anthology of the best writing from the LRB about these authors, Rousseau, Bentham, Simone de Beauvoir, John Rawls, many, many others in between. 
And there'll be special webinars with me for members where we can have a discussion about the themes of the series. I really want to emphasize that History of Ideas is still going to be available as last time, completely free as a podcast for anyone who wants to listen to it. And there won't be adverts either. Like before, this is something that we really wanted to do during lockdown. I know that a lot of people are away from schools, from universities, and this is something that we want to make as widely available as possible. But the membership scheme is there for people who want to turn it into something more like a course with all the reading materials, all the books supplied and more. If you sign up as a member, it is a way of getting all of the stuff and supporting this podcast. And it's very easy to do. You just have to go to lrb.me slash ideas plus. That's ideas plus spelt out P-L-U-S. You can also click on the link at the top of the History of Ideas page on the Talking Politics podcast website. That's talkingpoliticspodcast.com. The first episode, Rousseau on Inequality, will be going out on February the 2nd. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Indeed, to some extent, the city's intent too over the issue of beginning to um, trade Swiss chairs. Start to say that again. Beginning to trade Swiss chairs. Swiss chairs. Swiss chairs. (laughs) We, We can see the government's intent and the city's intent, I think, as well. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.